Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Elon Musk CEO status at Twitter is up for a vote on Twitter. You're going to learn oh so much on today's show. Vanity Fair's Nick Bilton, who literally wrote the book on Twitter, will talk to us about what the hell is happening there. Then we'll talk to Molly White, who writes the amazing blog, Web3 is going just great, about FTX and SBF and many of the other woes of the crypto industry. But first, we have the host of NPR's Full Disclosure and Here and Now, Robin Farzad, Welcome to Fast Politics, Robin. Thank you for having me, Molly. What a joy. What flattery. Oh, well, I'm thrilled. It's like there's so much shit going on right now. Excuse my French. With the economy and inflation and the numbers and are they better or are they worse? So my first question for you is here we are. And again, I always feel like my feelings do not necessarily jive with what has actually happened <laughs> In my heart, it feels like the economy is better than we thought it was going to be. Am I wrong? What the hell is happening? The economy's got deep power to it. I don't know where this money is left over from. If it was extraordinary stimulus from the pandemic or the fact that many of us are working from home and not commuting or not spending on wardrobe, but you can't really kill it as much as the Fed has hiked. And now you've hiked more than four points in a year. This is the biggest surge of inflation we've had in 40 years. Many of us have never experienced capital I inflation that they keep taking rates up. And nope, we're still doing the FOMO travel, FOMO dining out, tickets. I I mean, pandemic be damned, RSV be damned, fever be damned. And I was at Chipotle the other day and these uh, 
these hucksters actually <laughs> shook me down for $3 for an extra dollop of chicken. I remember when extra chicken was $1.25. All you need to know about this economy is Chipotle. I mean, you have a willingness to pay. I don't even like it that much. The kids sent me there. But they extort you every time. They have pricing power. And that's the way things are headed. And there's a tip button now, too. Okay, so you finance people, economists, people who deal with the economy, very involved in Chipotle. Is inflation worse than we thought? I mean, the numbers went down. The Biden administration seems very joyous. They're not, I mean, they're still high, right? I mean, explain to us where we are with inflation. You have the Federal Reserve look at things in terms of a bifurcate, like a a duality of economy. You want stable prices and full employment. We have arguably more than full employment with unemployment at three and a half percent. In fact, we have too many job openings, nobody willing to take these jobs. I think the Fed privately, if you got Jerome Powell a beer or vermouth at a bar, he'd tell you, I'd gladly trade you know, 5% unemployment for 2 3% inflation. It used to be that we just got used to 2 3% inflation. It's closer to 7% now, and it hit as much as 9 nearly 10%. And that's really hard to snuff out. I mean, by hiking rates up, in, pre- in theory, you're making borrowing so difficult for people. You're making short-term treasury yields or maybe bank savings yields so attractive that people don't want to spend the money. In practice, like you said, there's a lot of money out there and there's still plenty to spend. And FOMO, I call it FOMO, fear of missing out versus FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee. That's really what this boils down to. <laughs> So they're raising interest rates. The Fed is raising interest rates because of this inflation in the hopes of slowing it down. It's making the markets mad. Yeah, and it's making things perverse. Like on many days, you have a bull run on bad news. Because if there's bad news, there's this idea that, oh, it's going to make the Fed think twice about hiking again. Or we'll have a sooner end to this rate hiking cycle. If there's good news, like, whoop, we're going to we're going to take rates up to 6%. This is worse than we thought. And so there's a complete disconnect now between news you should be rooting for and news investors and speculators are rooting for. And this has actually been the worst year for diversification in recent history. It, it used to be that if you're in stocks and bonds, you get ballast, you get protection, but everything has gotten taken out and shot this year. So an enormous amount of confusion and capitulation among investors. So this is real, the markets are not the economy. That's right. It's really not that way. I mean, you know, we first came to the United States, and this is a little cliche that I tell this story. One of my coming of age things is my dad, as an immigrant, was very proud to take me to the Savings Bank of America in North Dade County, Florida, and give me my first passbook savings account in 1982. And I was a kindergartner. And I remember there were toasters and blenders everywhere. And the the CDs were paying 15, 16%. That's when the Fed was last killing inflation. Banks were begging you to give them your money. And if we have the highest inflation in 40 years, we don't have anything like that at a bank. I walk into a B of A or a Chase and they feel like they're doing me a favor if I open up a CD or a money market account. Things have changed so much. I haven't felt inflation in my adult life. There's been a lot of crying wolf and, oh, you're going to let this thing out of the bag and you're not going to be able to put it back in the bag. And it's finally visited it this year. And I speak to 
traders and investors and Wall Street people, and there just isn't an institutional memory. A lot of the greenhorns out there have never had to deal with a foe like this. We we largely have broken the back of inflation for more than a generation. But we haven't this time, right? I mean, inflation isn't going up anymore, but it's not going down. And they've raised rates almost every month, though this month they only raised by half a percent. Yeah, but again, we raised by a chunky four full points, more than four points. And we have another hike in the offing, I think, in February. And inflation, you could say, is getting sanded down a bit, but 7.1%, that's still chunky. And I got to tell you, the theoretical stuff you see, the government stats, they don't jibe with what you see in the grocery store. Avian flu has eggs at nearly $4, or people are complaining about romaine lettuce, you know, basic staples, gas prices for much of this year choked people off. And the Chipotle factor, to me, that's still... Oh, my God. I don't want... I want to never talk about that restaurant again. I mean, I just don't think it's that good. Mexican food is good. I don't either. There's better food out there, but they single-handedly caused inflation. They have so much power. (laughs) They single-handedly caused... A Haas avocado. Back when I lived in Manhattan, I used to get sweet Haas avocados for 99 cents All and right. regale Jesus. my then girlfriend, now wife, with him. Now I can't buy one for less than four bucks. <laughs> That's neither here nor there, but go ahead. That really is. Yes. Well, I mean, I guess it shows inflation. Gas is, though, down, right? I mean, gas is down now. Right. And that's was one of the big drivers, right? Gas is down. Labor is not down enough. I think that uh, people are still feeling that stores cannot beg people to show up for job interviews, much less show up for the job. Right. You've had to up the ante. What was effectively now the de facto minimum wage in many cities in service sector jobs, not statutory necessarily, is $15. And $15, and there's much more clout now in terms of negotiating for tips, a tip option. You see what's happening with Starbucks. Uh, I had recently a person on my show who's turning his coffee shop into a bit of a kibbutz collective type thing, a co-ownership thing with his baristas because there's no management track. There's no equity track. Right. It's and, and then on top of that, getting people back to the office is like pulling teeth. Now, have we, if we had more of an economic shock and unemployment was back up to 6% or 7%, I think that would expose a lot of honesty and and price discovery in the market, but we're still enjoying less than 4% unemployment. Right. Some of this has to do with immigration. Absolutely. And this is where, you know, somebody's got to do a great thing on the Chamber of Commerce's clout versus MAGA. You have so many people who are nominally GOP voting and everything, like the CEO of grocery store chains and restaurant chains and everything. Privately, they tell you that I've been killed on the lack of immigration, whether it was the Trump administration channeling hostility. I used to depend not just on illegal or undocumented workers, but people who would come here seasonally and work in my diner. I could get a short order chef. There's this tradition, a history we have, not just in fruit picking and agriculture and painting and tarring the roof and, and landscaping, but on repatriating money back to Mexico and Central America and other places. And we so badly need that immigration right now because there just aren't there are too many openings and the, the the wages, the clearing price wages for these things, which aren't even effective, are driving up menu costs and everything else. You're seeing it in agriculture. You're seeing it in home building. You're seeing it just across the board. And it's a conversation that I think the diminishing Chamber of Commerce wing of the GOP 
needs to have with its cultural right wing. I mean, maybe you could have found this somewhere in that 2012 post-mortem of the election, which is in in embers somewhere. I don't even know. (laughs) Let me ask you, what happens now? Where do we think this goes, right? There's no fix for immigration on the horizon. So the labor markets are not going to loosen. I mean, the only way labor markets get looser is by adding more people. I mean, are we just stuck in this forever? I think here's where the Fed would privately like to see higher unemployment because you'll see slack in wages and you'll see people who were unwilling to show up at work more willing to show up at work. Do you remember what happened at the outset of this pandemic? We nearly we visited unemployment in the high teens. Uh, the TV news networks had all this aerial footage of long bread lines right, and right. people waiting to get the, that. That was very short lived, and it, it immediately shot back down. That exposes a lot of truth, you know, as as Warren Buffett says, and it's a little cliche, you see when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing swim trunks. Right. It's entirely possible that way. And the Fed, while probably doesn't want to tip the economy into a full-blown recession, wants to see higher pain so that wages subside. So much is so much is captured here in wages and, and and the vicious wage price spiral of people demanding higher wages, bosses and everything, increasing menu prices, passing it down to consumers, consumers going to their bosses, getting higher wages. We're still feeling that. And now I'm going to sound like a socialist, but higher wages are good, especially in the world where cost of living, you know, I mean, part of this is there hasn't, the wage growth hasn't kept up with the economy. I mean, don't you think that share buybacks and things like that where profits were put on to the managerial class and the wealthy and not given to the workers was kind of how we got here in the first place? And you're saying this from the Upper East Side, not the Upper West (laughs) Side? I mean, I'm from the Zabar's district. I know this. I know this spiel. But yeah, no, but here's the problem is if you have inflation at north of wage growth, then you're still losing money in real time. But the good news is that we're Workers rested back a tremendous amount of clout in the battle between capital and labor. This has been a real defining moment of workers who just didn't want to show up. You've read about quiet quitting, about people who just wanted to lie flat and do these other things. And there's still that clout in whatever peculiar area we are in this economic cycle. The worker right now, the blue collar worker, the service sector worker has an enormous amount of bargaining power. And that just hasn't been seen over decades where there's this, this is learned helplessness. The money is going to go first to shareholders and dividends and right. management and profit. And now you can't You're leaving money on the table if you don't have workers, so you need to pay them. So that actually is a positive. Yes, it's an equilibration. In the past, you didn't. After the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, I remember I was covering Lehman and everything, and people were saying, if this doesn't get workers in the streets with pitchforks, the fact that you're bailing out Wall Street, I don't know what will. But it didn't. I mean, Obama took power. They say, don't waste a good crisis. Wall Street got to recapitalize with dividends again, and then we went back to business as usual. The pandemic, fundamentally, it's a it's a sea change moment where uh, people who are putting up with crap, working at diners, working at Walmarts, working at grocery stores with irate, crabby customers coming out, right. uh, getting hero pay at the outset and seeing that hero pay go away. And on top of the fact that something like Obamacare has been normalized now and you can port health insurance, don't underestimate how important that's been. And it's going to be hard to take that bone back from the dog's mouth. That, I think, together has really given the worker much more clout. Uh, Watch what's happening at Starbucks very closely. I think it's fascinating. And then on top of that, you know, tips. 
tips. You know, you can't go anywhere now without a tip option. Wait, I want to talk to talk to you about unions, because one of the things that we talk a lot about here are unions. And, uh, you know, I come from this union family. My grandfather was very yeah. involved with unions. So, like, I want to know, it seems like we're in a period right now where there are huge victories for unions, Starbucks, at least that's an ongoing victory, small victories. Amazon is in a fight trying to, you know, kill a, a young union. But then there are also some really terrible things that have happened, like what's happening with the railroad workers. So where are we with unions? I still think unions are in the part of a long, inexorable decline. Generationally, you tell me if Gen Y, Gen Z really feels this clamoring to join a union. It's a hard sell. I think if there was more unanimity, if you saw all of these Amazon unionization pushes be slam dunks. If you saw Starbucks slam dunk with unionization across the country, right? You're even seeing a move to have a three-day work stoppage across a hundred stores. There just isn't that unanimity. Journalists, where are the journalist unions that are banded together? Right. I mean, various things that have happened. They had a lot of power. There's a Life magazine story I read, I think from 1972 on the power of unions. And so much of that is curtailed. And, and what's gone out the door with that is a lot of the Democrats' blue collar clout, which was siphoned away from Reagan, as you're feeling right now with lesser educated, blue collar workers kind of sifting away to cultural issues. I think that that's largely continuing. And I don't see younger people, I at least anecdotally or quantitatively, don't see evidence that they're lining up to join unions. I mean, do you think, though, I just want to get back to this for a second. It does seem like the, the only way you can protect those lower wage earners would be unions. It's possible. I would, you know, I would ask these Starbucks workers. I know many baristas, some feel that they get much more self-determination in terms of banding together with the store and using social media and the other stores and, you know, sh shaking down a regional executive like the Starbucks national movement. A lot of the problem is, is some of these jobs are transient type jobs. Amazon warehouse workers, a, a, a lot of people take these jobs as a stepping stone to something else and can't see themselves in unionization. That's why this barista who I recently had on, Eric Spivak of Alchemy Coffee said, I need to take this into my own hands because I don't want people to think of this as a transitional job. I want them to have ownership. I want them to right. potentially have equity. Now that on a kind of a Maslow's hierarchy of needs level, if insurance is provided for, I need to give you a, a, a path. And if you have ownership, you're going to think twice about waste or you're going to think twice about absenteeism and all these other things. And I think that's a fascinating experiment. And I would hope that the likes of Amazon and Starbucks and others look at it that way instead of kind of zero sum. It's either my shareholders or my workers, right? Right, 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 right. It's a good point. I have one two-part question here. What the fuck is Elon Musk doing? Is he playing three-dimensional chess and I just don't understand the process of how distressed debt is. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a lot of theories going on. I mean, is he having some kind of meltdown or is he playing some kind of three-dimensional chess? Do you remember, what is it, producers, Bialystok and Bloom, right? Oh, yes. Springtime for Hitler in Germany. Yeah, there's a little bit of springtime for Hitler going on here. Do you want to sabotage Twitter as a going concern so you, as a person with $150 billion Tesla equity ATM can buy the distressed debt back from the reluctant banks at 
a fraction of what you bought it for. I mean, it seems like a Luddite type thing to do. You think that's what's going on? I can't get in the guy's mind. You're already, you know what? If What do we say, Dayenu? It would have been good enough <laughs> if you just ran Tesla and SpaceX and changed the world type person. You had goodwill and you're the wealthiest person on the planet. But you had to be a big shot, did you? You had to go and buy Twitter and blow $44 billion on it and let everybody go and then have these, you know, tilted windmills with journalists and other people on the platform as advertisers flee. What's amazing to me is that people, he can entirely not care that he has $45 billion or probably $48 billion. I think he sold $3 billion in Tesla stock, probably to retire debt. At some point, money doesn't matter. You just have so much of it. What are you going to do, eat more? So I can't get into his head. One thing that really bothers me, and I, I mentioned it, on TV this morning is Twitter's management that was there. Yes, it was a publicly traded company. Was the only consideration that this was the highest bid that they could get in the market? Did they not have an independent director's committee that said, well, we can't risk having a man-child narcissist run the company into the ground? No, they just, they took the money and ran. And that's a problem with me is that that money in an efficient market, right? You should have it should be more than the shareholders. They're stakeholders. You had half your employees that are shit-canned. You have the standards people that are gone. You have a person out there willy-nilly claiming that he's you know, an assassination risk and I'm going to take public information down. It's turned into such a sad shit show. And everybody who's on Twitter has a love-hate relationship with it already. And I'm just frustrated that you, know, you can't have something like a Google bird that just shows up and replicates this experience in a non-nefarious kind of more organic way that we're all kind of beholden to this guy. Give me your under over on where this goes. I think that he keeps owning it. I don't know how he, I don't think he cares anymore. It's private. And I think he keeps selling Tesla stock to get the banks out of it. What leverage does anybody have to get him out of it? And we hang on because our accounts are all there. I mean, you are invested significantly, Molly, in Twitter. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could go to Mastodon, you could go to Substack and people will follow you, but what's going to happen? He will then lose control of Tesla, right? A simple economic question here. If you have a choice between holding stock and Tesla or owning stock in Twitter, wouldn't you rather have stock in Tesla? I think he's still worth $150 billion substantially in Tesla. So he, he doesn't has care. so much of Tesla. I don't see him losing control. But it is. it should be very worrisome to Tesla shareholders. The stock has gotten murdered over the past year. And the fact that he's redeeming the stock and selling it on the way down, not, probably not for financial planning reasons, but more than likely than not to retire the bank's debt if that wasn't the case, then the banks could come in and say, you're not hitting performance milestones. We could take the company. We could wrest control from you. And I think he's forestalling that. So in the end, he just keeps selling Tesla stock and keeps buying Twitter stock. It's this Luddite type arrangement, a, a Twitter debt. It's private now. He'd be buying it from the banks. And it's almost Citizen Kane-like. It's this combination of narcissism, ego, paranoia with the sousant of kind of right-wing heroism and a man with so many followers, and I'm probably going to get banned myself for saying this, but you look at you look at the great reporters who suddenly, it felt like Squid Game last night. Like, gosh, should I say this? Should I change the U in Musk to a V to kind of conceal my footprints? You don't think there's a grand plan here? I just can't see it. Why would you do that? If you come in, you should be worried. You know how much debt he put on this company? You should be worried about advertisers. You should be genuflecting before people. If you are a torchbearer for free speech, then be it. You know, worst case scenario, he he decides to spit it out in two years when tech markets back up at, let's say, 90% of what he bought it. 
for right, it. Doesn't right, matter right. to him. Again, he's worth $150 billion. At his peak, he was worth well north of that. But his net worth is hemorrhaging because Twitter's share, I mean, Tesla's shareholders are livid right now and they have a right to be. The man took his eyes off the ball. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, it's my joy. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Nick Bilton is a special correspondent at Vanity Fair and author of Hatching Twitter. Welcome to Fast Politics, Nick Bilton. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to talk about all the lunatics out there in the technology world. Well, I felt we had to talk about it because there's so much going on. I feel like for such a long time, Facebook was this problem that needed to be dealt with, right? And there is certainly a lot of Facebook news about its involvement with, in multiple genocides. 
Can we talk about Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like we need to talk about all of them. It's like you've got Zuck and Facebook, you've got Elon and Twitter, you've got SBF and FTX, and like it's almost like they're robots and someone spilled water on them and they just broke. And we like finally got to see it all happen. And I feel like for the first time ever that the government is actually aware of what's going on too. Feels like end of days for the tech world. Oh, see, I like this take. You wrote about Zuck being surrounded by sycophants. You know, he seems to me like he's having this sort of quietest downward spiral of the three of them. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, you look at the market cap of Facebook over the last year, it has fallen several hundred billion dollars. And I think that the reason for that is he picked the wrong bet. Look, I think the thing about Mark is he's an incredibly smart, incredibly driven person. But at the same time, he is not an ideas guy. Every idea he's ever had has essentially been stolen from something else. Right. <laughs> or borrowed or whatever you want to call it. I think stolen will do it. Stolen's a good a good term. And he had this original idea like, oh, the metaverse, like that's cool. I don't have to like go talk to other humans in real life. I can do it on a on a screen that's like duct taped to my face. And he made the wrong bet because no one wants to go live in the fucking metaverse. Like if anything, <laughs> COVID taught us that Technology allows us to be connected to other people when we don't have the ability, but the end of COVID showed us that we don't want that. We want human interaction. And I think Zuck is the opposite and made the worst bet of all as a result of that. So we have Zuck and Metaverse. He's killing his company, but he's doing it quietly and he's spending a lot of time in Hawaii. Then we have this incredible Elon whatever this is. What is this? Honestly, I've been covering Twitter since the day the company started in one form or another. I've known all these guys for years and years and years and years, Elon included. And if you would have told me 10 years ago when I wrote a book about the company, if you just said, write me a list of 100,000 scenarios, let's just say a million scenarios of what Twitter you know, could end up looking like in the future, this would not have made it on that list. Like Elon buying the company, literally obliterating everything that has been built up over the past 17 years. And to the point that now I I just think he's trying to destroy. I don't actually know what he's doing. And I think that, you know, you're seeing his lunacy play out in public. I think in, in the past, I'd heard many, many stories about how crazy he was at SpaceX and Tesla. And I think that he was surrounded by and insulated by people that, you know, ensure that that lunacy was used for good and not evil. And I think Twitter is not surrounded by that. And it's all in public. And it's, I mean, honestly, one of the craziest stories I've ever seen. Do you think... And then SBF. Let's talk about SBF because that's like the third billionaire in the triptych of broken billionaires. There are many more broken billionaires. Right. No, no. These are the ones, sure, the, the, story of the, the, the story of the week is, is these triptych. He's going to jail and quickly. Well, he's actually currently, yeah, he's currently sitting in a jail cell in the Bahamas, which I think is such a sweet revenge for what he did to, you know, everyone. I, You know, look, I think he is a, I don't know if sociopath is the right description for him. I just think he's just an arrogant brat from what I can tell. And he thought he was smarter than everyone else and clearly was was very, very far from that. And he squandered billions of dollars that belonged to other people and thought he was just going to get away with it. And thank God, the, you know, the government went and arrested him. And I, you know, based on the potential charges that are against him, he could spend up to 155 years in jail. Like, this is a Bernie Madoff's 
you know, a size screw up. And I think that he's going to be in a lot of trouble. I, I truly believe that it actually will. This will be one of those where there actually will be justice served. What has happened, Elon, seems to me a sort of he was maybe right wing. He was maybe slightly less right wing. It's not clear. But he's clearly been radicalized. I don't know. I mean, look, I think put aside the, the stupid QAnon tweet this week and like I have a, a different point of view on this. Like, I think most people I'll speak anecdotally from people I know in Hollywood, people I know in tech, people I know in the arts, you know, so on and so forth. Like pretty much, you know, every dinner party, every play day, every school conversation over the past couple of years. And I think what happened, my personal opinion, is what happened is a lot of people were on the left and anti-Trump. And then when Trump went away, the left started to kind of eat its own, which it always does. And I think right. that it put people in a, in a situation where they were like, I don't know if I agree with that. Like, I'll give you one example. In Los Angeles, there's this bill that passed called 4118. And what it was, was you had, for whatever reason, I think it's because of the way these the schools are designed in, in America, but in Los Angeles and specifically, all the schools were surrounded by homeless encampments, like elementary schools, right. middle schools, and high schools, okay. and, and more so in poor neighborhoods. And so there were kids that were literally walking through homeless encampments of people shitting on the sidewalk and smoking meth and all these other things to get to school. And people were like, eh, this is not cool. Like, you know, let's move them across the street. So there was this rule put in place, 4118, that said, let's move the homeless encampments 500 feet away from, from this schools, daycares, and elderly centers. And there were people on this extreme left that went berserk. And they were like, you can't do that to the homeless people. And I think that there's a million instances like that of issues around trans issues, This, all these things where people can't agree. And I think that it drove a lot of people to the center, Elon being one of them. I mean, I don't think Elon's in the center, though, right? I think, yeah, well, I think Elon is, is right of center. I think where I think where Elon goes after that is that he, like, his, like, Fauci conspiracy theories and his, you know, QAnon tweets and, and the deep state and things like that. Like, I would put him in, like, kind of like a Joe Rogan, like, right wing. I wouldn't put him in, like, a Ben Shapiro right wing kind of bucket. You know what I'm saying? I think it's, like, there's a difference between it. And I'm not justifying anything that Elon does. I think he's a nut job. Right. The biggest problem is he now has one of the large, loudest voices in the world. He's got 120 right. million followers on Twitter. And he's, the stuff he's talking about is just insanity, total insanity. I mean, I think there certainly is some kind of internal Los Angeles debate about the homeless problem, which has radicalized some rich people who live in Los Angeles. But I'm curious, you know, he technically lives in Texas, doesn't he? No, no, I'm not. I'm just saying I'm not talking about him and his viewpoints on, on homelessness in Los Angeles. I'm, right. just, I'm using that as an example to talk about how there are these there are a million 4118 stories, right? And they are issues that where people who are liberal, right? And actually, it's not just rich people in Los Angeles. It's a lot of poor people in Los Angeles that were pushing for this because it was primarily this was happening in the poor neighborhoods and their kids were being forced to walk through this stuff. This stuff is not happening in Brentwood and Beverly Hills. Like, I think that there are a million stories like this that have driven a, like, 80% of people that were on the left to the center. And I think that most of them have stayed left of center and they still, you know, are pro-choice and anti-gun and this, that, and the other. It's just the, some of these, these like extreme issues where they don't agree with. But what happened with Elon was he just kept driving the truck and he went, he kept going righter and righter. And he's just in some weird, like nebulous, like no man's land of, I don't even know what his viewpoints are anymore. I think they, they change by the hour. It's just 
it's it's uh, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. I think he likes to be liked, right? Because he's said like Democrats were really mean to me, right? I, yeah, I totally agree. He, I think I think most of them want to be liked at the end of the day, and they're like very insecure people. And uh, I mean, did you see what happened with the Dave Chappelle show this week? Yeah, let's talk about that. So that was in California. He went on stage in a Dave Chappelle show. I mean, I listened to it. It sounded like they were booing him. It was San Francisco. Was it in San Francisco? Yeah. So he was. It was San Francisco. Dave Chappelle was doing a set. Eighteen thousand people in the arena. And Dave said, who, who wants to see the richest guy in the world? And Elon comes out with his arms in the air like some national hero. And at first there was some boos and some claps. And then it was just all boos. And for five minutes straight, I talked to people who were there for five minutes straight. It was just boos. And, and Dave Chappelle was like, it looks like there's some Twitter, ex-Twitter employees in the audience, which is, of course, funny. But after the fact, I mean, he was like, I talked to people who said, they don't like Elon and even they felt bad for him. And it was just this constant like boo, boo, boo. Uh, afterwards, you know, this is just typical Elon. He tweeted, it was only the woke people in the audience that were booing. Excuse me. It's a Dave Chappelle show. There was no one woke in the audience. <laughs> like they don't, those people wouldn't go and see Dave Chappelle because of all the stuff he said about trans people. So it's like the people that were booing him were the people that probably used to adore him. I don't think he gets it. So it does seem to me like if you look at what's happened with SBF, there is a sense in which the government is getting more right involved and quicker. And, you know, there's been a hesitation, I think, on a part of a lot of legislators to legislate tech, despite the sort of fact that tech companies pretend to want to be legislated. Of course, they don't. We have Section 230 trending like every day on Twitter. Where does this go? I think that what, you know, have you been following ChatGTP, the the new AI? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. But this is this is to answer that question. Okay. So ChatGTP, it's this new artificial intelligence system that is built on a concept that was introduced in 2017, which completely changed AI and natural language processing, so that you can it could start to understand humans the way humans understand humans and start to speak to humans in the same way. And it's I've been covering tech for 20 years. It's the most astounding, scariest thing I've ever seen because it is so good at what it does. And we'll get so much better. And a lot of people were reaching out to me who are in the tech community and saying, this is terrifying. It should not be out there. It needs to be regulated in the same way that nuclear power and nuclear weapons and all these other things need to, because it has the ability to decimate uh, the job market. 50 to 80 million jobs could vanish. And these are not garbage people and, and sidewalk cleaners. These are like lawyers, accountants, writers, all of these crazy creative industries. And what I heard this week is that the White House was immediately making calls and that there's a task force there that's involved in AI. And they were like starting to reach out to people. I've never seen that happen before. Usually it takes, you know, a year, two years, five years before the White House and the U.S. government is aware of the things that are happening. You saw that play out with Bitcoin. It took 10 years before they were they realized. And so I do think that we're getting to a point where the people who are working in government are becoming more aware of the things that are happening and quicker. But there's also massive limitations on what they can do because we live in a time where the U.S. Constitution was not written for things like chat, GTP and Twitter and other tech that exists today. And so there I don't know how these things go from them being aware of them to change actually happening. Predict for us. And if you're wrong, don't worry, we'll make fun of you for it. Oh, I'll be wrong. I'll be wrong. <laughs> Predict for us where this goes with Elon. 
you could say to me, predict to me like how long humanity will live before we kill ourselves with some kind of rogue whatever. And I would probably get it more aptly correct than if I were to try to predict where it goes with anyone. I'll give you what I've heard as a prediction. The prediction is that he defaults on the debt and no bank on planet Earth is going to want to own Twitter and deal with it. So they come to some sort of an agreement where he pays 50 cents on the dollar uh, or even less. He continues to gut the staff. Advertising continues to plummet. No one pays for the blue check marks, at least not not a large number of people, and more and more people on the left or any, anybody who is center to left, which is a lot of people, continues to leave the platform, which has been happening like in mass this week. And I think it gets to a point where he breaks it. And then at the end of that, uh, it's a shell of itself. It's some sort of right wing kind of true social like thing. And he goes back to play with his rockets and his cars and he loses $44 billion. That's my prediction. That was depressing. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, Nick Bilton. (laughs) Of course. Thank you for having me on. I know you, our dear listeners, are very busy and you don't have time to sort through the hundreds of pieces of punditry each week. This is why every week I put together a newsletter of my five favorite articles on politics. If you enjoy the podcast, you will love having this in your inbox every Friday. So sign up at fastpoliticspod.com and click the tab to join our mailing list. That's fastpoliticspod.com. Molly White is a crypto researcher and critic, and she writes the blog, Web3 is going just great. Welcome to Fast Politics, Molly. Thanks. It's been a bad week for crypto. (laughs) Yeah, that's, I think, an understatement. Let's talk first about FTX and what's happening with SBF. (laughs) Yeah, the acronyms are a little bit a lot. So FTX, you know, is a major cryptocurrency exchange that until somewhat recently was the second largest in the world but is now bankrupt and the subject of some fraud investigations thanks to its founder and former CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, who's often shortened to SBF. So you have been covering this pretty hardcore. Explain to me sort of how you got to this story. (laughs) Yeah, so I follow the crypto industry pretty closely. I maintain a blog called Web3 is Going Just Great, (laughs) which is a sarcastic title because tracks many frauds and scams and hacks and just general disasters in the cryptocurrency and Web3 industry. And so FTX and its explosion the past month or so has been under that purview, I would say. But, um, you know, it's something that people find interesting. I think fraud is clear at this point that will have impacts on many, many people. And so I've been doing what I can to try to help people understand what happened, the context in which it happened, and, you know, the, the impact and reflections it should have on the crypto industry as a whole. I just kind of want you to talk about SBF and, and sort of a little bit about him because he's got this sort of he has a shtick going. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> right. I mean, I think a lot of these figures in the crypto industry become sort of larger than life and each of them seems to have their own little persona. But Sam Bankman-Fried is uh, an MIT graduate. You know, he's a pretty nerdy guy. 
he absolutely plays that up by, you know, he's always a little bit disheveled. He wears shorts all the time and and like FTX branded t-shirts. And he always looks kind of like he just woke up. He claims at least to sleep in a beanbag chair in the FTX office, despite having a luxury penthouse in the Bahamas that he could avail himself of. And, you know, he has really made this brand for himself as sort of a boy genius who created this hedge fund or this rather this quantitative trading firm and then this uh, crypto exchange and made himself a billionaire at a fairly young age. I would say a lot of that is sort of a crafted persona that has been used really to make people trust him and, and believe that he might be the next nerdy kid who comes up with a billion dollar company, you know, in the wake of other nerdy tech personalities like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and folks like that. Can we talk about the parents? Because I'm telling you, the parents, as a Jewish mother myself, I don't know why this speaks to me. <laughs> yeah. So his parents are kind of an interesting feature of this story, which, you know, it's a fraud case for sure. You know, it's a, a question of fraud and it's a crypto collapse, but it also has this very sort of bizarre drama behind it with some of the personalities who are involved. And some of those personalities are Sam Bankman Fried's parents, who are both Stanford law professors. They are specifically knowledgeable about compliance, which you would think might have been useful <laughs> knowledge to share with their son. And he sort of like made his brand that like I'm an expert because of my parents, right? Well, he definitely played on the fact that he is American. He is, you know, from a pre prestigious background, both in his own education, but also in his family's background as Stanford law professors. So yes, I mean, I think he did really lean on that. I'm going to get to a larger question, but just talk about what the mother said. The, mo the mother has like had some great lines in this drama. Yeah, I mean, his parents' reactions to this have been somewhat strange. You know, they they were in attendance in the court hearing that happened, I want to say it was the day before yesterday. In the Caribbean. In the, Yeah, in the Bahamas, he had a court hearing to determine if he should be granted bail. And his mother apparently was sort of audibly laughing when he was referred to as a fugitive. And apparently at various times, his father put his fingers in his ears uh, when the the hearing was ongoing, which is just sort of strange behavior. I mean, I can definitely see how it would be traumatic for parents to see their son in, you know, appearing in court in handcuffs. But on the other hand, they are Stanford law professors. Right. You, know, you would sort of expect they might have some composure in this. But, you know, who's to say, I suppose. And he bought them a penthouse, right? Yeah. So some of the real estate that was purchased by FTX in the Bahamas was in his parents' names. And, you know, his parents definitely were not divorced from what was happening at FTX. Right. You know, when, when this first started happening, I was a little bit skeptical of, you know, people bringing up his parents because, you know, just because you're the son of a law professor doesn't necessarily mean you have inherited, you know, knowledge of the law from birth. Right. Uh, but I did then learn that, you know, his father was actually fairly involved in FTX. He was directly involved in some of the phil philanthropy that was happening and some of the various other programs that FTX was putting on. And so, you know, I think it is reasonable to pay some attention to what might have been going on there. There's a lot of talk of FTX and there's a lot of talk about 
NFTs and what do they get wrong about crypto? I think one thing that's happening, especially recently in the wake of the FTX collapse is the idea that these are really isolated incidents, you know, that this was just an issue of fraud. Sam Bankman-Fried is just one bad apple. This is not a systemic problem. It is not reflective of issues in the crypto industry as a whole. Uh, The crypto industry is always very quick to dissociate itself from bad actors and from disasters that happen. But these disasters happen all the time. I mean, like my blog specifically follows disasters in the crypto industry, and it's usually at least one a day. And that's hacks and scams and, you know, bankruptcies and things like that. This is not an issue of a a one-off problem. This is absolutely representative of crypto as a whole. And I think that the media has to be careful when it comes to repeating the lines that are coming out of the crypto industry, which is very much motivated to maintain as much as possible a veneer of respectability here. So let's talk about that hearing yesterday, Senate hearing on crypto, I'm going to have you debunk something stupid as opposed <laughs> okay. to what you've been doing this whole time. Elon Musk, perhaps you've heard of him, had a tweet that said that SBF is not going to uh, face any investigation because he gave a lot of money to Democratic politicians. Yes. <laughs> OK, so now he's in jail. He is denied bail, waiting for extradition. He's probably going to get in the new year, January, February brought back to America. He's likely going to go to jail for a long time. This investigation seems like it's moving very fast, relatively speaking. People online, many of whom are hopefully bots, um, have been saying, well, they got to him before he could testify. His testimony was published yesterday. Talk to me about his testimony and also just how, you know, everything else. Yeah, so that's been a pretty popular conspiracy theory fairly recently has been that Sam Bankman-Fried is going to just get off scot-free because he made all of these large donations to Democratic candidates and, and committees and things like that. What that ignores is that he also made substantial donations to Republicans as well. He just was quieter about them. He made them (laughs) through sort of back channels and was not making headlines for it. So I think the idea that Sam Bankman-Fried himself is, you know, this huge supporter of the Democrats is a little bit overblown. But I think also the idea that he is just going to get away with all of his fraud and various crimes without any prosecution is kind of a silly thing to say now that he is in custody and has had charges filed against him by the Attorney General of the Southern District of New York, the SEC, and the CFTC. I saw an amusing article this morning or yesterday in the American Prospect that said if the Forest Service could have filed charges against him, they would have. (laughs) You know, people are really cracking down on him. Right. As far as the testimony thing, that is an interesting question. He was scheduled to testify in front of the House on Tuesday, and he was arrested in the Bahamas the night before, and so he was unable to appear for that testimony. And some of the Congress members did bring that up. They questioned why that arrest would happen at that time when it would presumably be in the interest of the prosecutors to have Sam Bankman-Fried testify in front of Congress under oath for hours You know, they could potentially add lying to Congress to his charges if he did lie to Congress, which, you know, he's been on a bit of a lying tour recently, so that seems likely. That was something that someone asked the attorney's office in the Southern District of New York 
during a hearing that or during a press conference they had about the charges. And and the, the U.S. attorney said that it was a coincidence. They had filed the charges the week before and then the indictment had come down the Friday before. And so it was just a matter of waiting for law enforcement to act. And it, you know, was not an intentional thing. Who's really to say? I mean, I don't right. have any more visibility into that than anybody else. But some Congress people did seem a little bit concerned about the timing. The idea that a vol- voluntary testimony and remember, he had said, I mean, didn't you interview him in a Twitter spaces? <laughs> yeah, I had the opportunity to ask him a couple questions like the day that he was arrested several hours before. I mean, somebody asked him about the testimony and he was like, yeah, I think I'm going to do it right. At that point, he had committed to testifying in front of Congress, but he had not committed to appearing in front of the Senate who was having a hearing the day after. And so I asked him first, why was he going to be appearing virtually in front of Congress instead of in person? And then I asked why he did not plan to testify in front of the Senate. And he said that he was needed in the Bahamas, which is (laughs) ridiculous because he is not involved (laughs) with FTX in any way. The current executives who are handling the FTX bankruptcy are not involving him. They're not asking questions of him at this point. So there is probably nothing important for him to be doing in the Bahamas. He also said he was overbooked, which was a silly thing to say when his bookings (laughs) seemed to be various interviews on Twitter spaces and in various other places, which I would not think would be more important than testifying in front of the Senate. Yeah, I mean, wild stuff. I want to talk to you about uh, Mr. Wonderful versus <laughs> Elizabeth Warren. Yes. <laughs> I saw that you tweeted it. It was a pretty amazing bit of amazingness. Talk to us about this Senate hearing and what it meant and how badass Elizabeth Warren is. <laughs> so, yeah, the Senate brought in four witnesses, one of whom was Kevin O'Leary, who was a paid <laughs> spokesperson for FTX. FTX had paid him $15 million to become basically a brand ambassador, a position that he fulfilled quite adequately, I would say. He was shilling for FTX at basically every opportunity. And now that it's collapsed, he's still been very friendly to Sam Bankman-Fried. I mean, he said in an interview at one point that he would fund Sam Bankman-Fried again. And this was after the evidence of fraud began to come out. Jesus. So it was a very strange choice, I think, to have Kevin O'Leary come as a witness. I don't know who decided that was a good idea. (laughs) Well, for him anyway. Yeah. I mean, part of me was wondering if it was, you know, someone who was crypto critical who brought him in front of the Senate because they knew it would make crypto look bad. But You know, you're right Right. that it it was good for him in terms of getting his name into headlines and things like that, which I think is maybe his top priority. But Senator Warren asked a question of him, which was basically, do you think crypto is so incredible and so innovative that it should be exempted from the same anti-money laundering laws that are required of traditional financial institutions. And he said no, but he then tried to object to something she had said earlier, which, you know, she basically said that crypto is particularly useful for criminals. And he tried to make the argument that is pretty common among crypto (laughs) advocates that U.S. dollars are also used for crime. (laughs) And he said something very weird, which is that Drug traffickers have been using currencies for drug trafficking since the 60s. 
which is a really weird thing to say. It's like, I don't know if he thinks that drug trafficking just sprung into existence in the 1960s or what. I thought he was describing a movie. Because remember what he said? Like, they're throwing the cash out of the airplane in a suitcase? I don't know if he, like, lost his train of thought halfway through or what happened, but it came out very strange. She did not push back on that, which she could have absolutely, but she just moved on and basically said, well, since... As you acknowledge, crypto is also used for crimes, as is the U.S. dollar. (laughs) Shouldn't crypto then be subject to the same types of regulations that are applied to financial institutions that use the dollar? And he said no, you know, and and tried to object to what she said. But he he came out looking pretty foolish, I think. For example, I know Puerto Rico had, you know, there was some and Miami and New York. There were some machinations between our insane mayors and crypto as BF is just a part of crypto. What is the larger exposure for the U.S. economy? I mean, are we looking at another housing crisis? Absolutely not. And that's something that Professor Hillary Allen spoke about at the Senate hearing yesterday. You know, she is an expert on financial stability, and she really credited banking regulations for their effectiveness in keeping crypto from infecting the traditional financial system. So, you know, FTX collapsed but it had no discernible effect on the stock market. You know, there was no concern that the government might end up having to bail out crypto in the same way that they bailed out banks in 2008. And for people who have no, you know, they hold no crypto, they don't have money that they were keeping on FTX, they won't notice any difference. And so I think that is something to to realize here is that despite the prevalence of crypto in the last couple of years, it has not become entwined in the traditional financial system in a way that contagion would be a risk. And I think to Hillary Allen's point yesterday, that's something that is critical to remain the case because, you know, it would be extremely concerning if, you know, everyday people who did not decide to engage in the risky type of behavior that is investing in crypto had to pay for the failures and the frauds that are absolutely common occurrence in the industry. Yeah, exactly. What are you what's coming down the pike that looks crazy and interesting? I think the Binance situation will be very interesting. Explain to my father what Binance is. <laughs> yeah. So Binance is much like FTX, uh, a cryptocurrency exchange, and it is the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the world. And it is, you know, orders of magnitude larger than FTX. It is not, you know, just a little bit bigger. And there, I think, are some questions now about what's been going on at Binance, which has for a long time been acknowledged as a bit of a shady operation. I mean, they won't even (laughs) disclose where they are based, you know, where they are headquartered, pretty much. You know, FTX had to buy out Binance's investment in FTX because it was such a regulatory hurdle that they basically could not cross that Binance had a stake in the company, so they had to buy them out. And so now we're starting to hear people question what's going on at Binance. There was recently billions of dollars of withdrawals that they processed during sort of a a miniature version of the run on the exchange that we saw with FTX. And, you know, senators were asking questions about Binance and it's now much larger position in the crypto exchange world. Now that FTX, its largest competitor, is no longer there. There was a report recently about 
a long-running investigation into Binance that has been happening, that has been examining questions around money laundering and sanctions evasion. Uh, Reuters reported that some of the prosecutors were split and believed that they should pursue criminal charges against Binance executives, including their CEO. Um, And then other prosecutors believed that they should hold off for a little bit, keep examining the evidence. So, you know, there is the possibility of criminal charges coming against Binance. But all that to say that, you know, if Binance were to collapse or even falter, it would have enormous effects on the cryptocurrency industry. I mean, we've seen what's happened in the recent couple of weeks with FTX, which was quite extreme and and quite widespread in terms of its contagion effects throughout the crypto industry, something happening to Binance would be absolutely devastating to the crypto industry, I think. And in fact, Binance's lawyers made that argument to prosecutors. They basically said that if you come after Binance, you will threaten the entire cryptocurrency industry. Yeah. Well, a good reason to let them keep doing what they're doing, obviously, (laughs) and not look into it. Thank you so much, Molly. This was great. I hope you'll come back. Thanks for having me. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jung fast. Jesse Cannon. Carrie Lake, it seems, is doing now the portion of her audition to be Trump's vice president where she runs to every organization to do a speech where she tries to say the most insane thing to get attention. And what a ride. I think she's either auditioning to be his fourth wife or his... (laughs) Either of which, in my mind, seem like bad jobs. You, you know what I found really interesting, though, because I'm obsessed with the filters she gets on the cameras. The lighting in both these speeches is so much different than all the other lighting on everybody <laughs> else, because you know her advanced team sat there making sure she's lit just perfectly for Mr. Trump to find her attractive. Golden C-3PO. But <laughs> Carrie Lake saying lots of crazy things. Her pronouns are I won, is what she said, uh, at the Turning Point USA. This bit never gets old for them. Turning Point USA is an entire conference built around the fact that Charlie Kirk didn't get into the college he wanted to go to. And so he decided that college was a scam. (laughs) And for that, that entire moment of Carrie Lake screaming about her pronouns proudly announcing she's an election denier and auditioning for Donald Trump's fourth wife. That is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. 
For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.